Good evening. Welcome to session number 36, the final session of our uh, discussion of La Morte d'Arthur by Sir Thomas Mowry. We have, of course, completed the text, and tonight we are going to talk about that greatest of 20th century Arthurian adaptations, uh, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I've been saying throughout the class that, of course, one of the uh, one of the payoffs um, of uh, uh, reading Maori is that this movie is even funnier afterwards uh, than uh, it was beforehand. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about this tonight. Of course, I trust that you all are familiar with this film uh, and probably know it quite well. Uh, so, of course, I'd be very interested to hear your own thoughts. I'm sure that there were times, in fact, I know that there were times because <clears throat> I could tell from the comments you were making in the questions box uh, during our discussions that this film was in your minds at many points uh, during uh, uh, during our discussion of Maori. So I'd be very interested to hear uh, what kinds of... Um, uh, what kinds of connections uh, you guys uh, made, and uh, you know, sort of your own thoughts uh, about um, uh, about that, your own thoughts about uh, connections between uh, between the film uh, and uh, and the book. Um, I wanted to to kind of I wanted to start by thinking about some of the the moments. There are several moments where the film is, I think, parodying uh, quite closely. The Arthurian tradition in general, but I think there's there's really a lot of Maori that uh, uh, Maori in particular that kind of looms behind uh, many of the the sort of the particular jokes that they uh, they end up uh, they end up making. Um, uh, but before actually, hang on. Before I get started though on that, let me uh, uh, let me do my announcements quick because there are some uh, definitely some things I want to either remind you of or make sure that you know are coming up. First of all, quick reminder: don't forget. Mythmoot coming up, and we only have about one month, indeed exactly one month from today, uh, is when registration closes. So you have one more month to register for Mythmoot if you haven't yet. Hope you can make it. It's going to be an awesome time. Uh, everybody who comes is going to uh, uh, have a wonderful time, and I'm looking forward to seeing everybody. So uh, come if you can. If you can't, um, then... Uh, 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 then there is another option this year, which is Mootcast. Uh, the, for the first time, we're going to be offering a uh, a full live uh, uh, remote attendance option where you can uh, do a full online registration for MythMoot and be able to attend all the sessions and get uh, video recordings, access to a full video archive of all of the, uh, the panels and presentations, uh, which is... Not the same as being there, but it's a pretty cool, uh, it's a pretty cool second best, uh, and an option I've been really looking forward to offering for a while. Uh, so at the, on the MythMoot page, signumuniversity.org slash MythMoot, uh, you'll be able to find all of the information, both for registering for, uh, the conference itself or for registering for MootCast, if you would like to. If you, re if you have registered or do register, uh, to attend even like a single day of MythMoot, you get MootCast with that. So you, you also get access to all the recordings and everything. So anyway, all right. Um, oh, awesome. I see that likely a bot has already uh, signed up for MootCast. That's, that's awesome. That's fantastic. I'm glad you'll be able to, to, to join us with that. Um, anyway, the other thing that I wanted to mention is, of course, one of the exciting things that's happening this week uh, is the Tolkien biopic is being released here in America this week. I know a couple people saw the special, uh, I you know, heard from a, a several people. I wasn't able to go last night to the special preview show. My 
home life was way too complicated last night for me to be able to do that. Um, so I wasn't able to see that. I did see the film earlier on. Um, but uh, anyway, I recommend it. You should go see the Tolkien film. I was expecting to loathe it. I didn't loathe it. Um, yeah, I found it really interesting and quite beautiful. Um, so I encourage you to go see it. I'm going to see it on Friday night, and then we'll have some conversation afterwards. Um, uh, and I'll be doing a broadcast about that pretty soon. But in surrounding uh, this, uh, uh, the the uh, release of the Tolkien film, you know, this may, I hope, inspire many people to want to learn more about, uh, more, learn more in a more factual manner about Tolkien's life. The film is a, is a, is a well-told story, but of course it's Hollywood and they take liberties with a lot of the details and needless to say, it's also uh, short because it's a feature film. So uh, even the parts that the stuff that they get more or less correct, it's all very compressed. Right. And obviously uh, the reality of the relationship between Tolkien and uh, uh, you know, and like his friends and, and his creative life in that time and everything a lot more complex than they can really convey. Uh, in a short film like that. So uh, if you are interested in that, then you might want to do what I'm doing right now, which is to reread John Garth's uh, uh, Tolkien in the Great War. Even better would be to get the Anytime Audit for uh, the course that, the full semester course that John Garth taught at Signum Tolkien's Wars in Middle-Earth, uh, where he uh, uh, taught at length um, about this whole era of Tolkien's life. So if you really want to dig into learn more about Tolkien and about the relationship between uh, his experiences in this part of his life that the film covers uh, and his creative world, uh, I strongly recommend uh, the course that that uh, that John taught Tolkien's Wars in Middle Earth. Middle Earth. We're doing a, a promotion uh, for that, which ends on the 19th of May. So uh, going now uh, until the 19th of May. Go to signumuniversity.org and you'll see a link to that um, uh, to that uh, 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 discount for that anytime audit. Um, <laughs> don't tell you the end. You worried about I'm gonna spoil <laughs> the Tolkien film? <laughs> it's, okay, so like he uh, doesn't. He 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 doesn't die in the war, and he goes on to write the Lord of the Rings. Sorry, until I spoil too much. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, so um, it's all, it's all good. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, and another reminder on the subject of uh, more directly on the Arthurian subject here. Uh, the Mythgard Movie Club this month, they're doing a special movie club to uh, celebrate the completion of our Mallory class. Uh, and uh, that is they're, they're going to be talking about the... Um, uh, the the film the uh, Camelot the musical uh, the old uh, the old adaptation which is a slightly inferior adaptation of course by the way I'm really quite sure that that's what the film is making fun of that's why they have the weird song and all the knights dancing around and stuff uh, when they when they do the you know the the Camelot song in the film um, uh, pretty sure that they are uh, satirizing of course not any of the the literary tradition but the the film tradition and that one in particular um but um <laughs> anyway um so uh anyway that that's going to be that's going to be a fun discussion so we're going to have a discussion of the Camelot film on uh May 30th 
at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So uh, I look forward to uh, getting together with the Mythgard Movie Club folks again and having our discussion. Then I hope you'll be able to join us for that. All right. Um, uh, so let's... Uh, uh, move along here with our discussion. So, as I said, I want to begin with scenes which seem to me to be fairly close parody. Now, you know, I'm not trying to argue, by the way, that it's like exactly Mallory himself, like that that it's precisely this text that um, the uh, the film is, is satirizing at these particular points. Um, I'm not making that claim exactly, but... Two things. One, uh, Terry Jones, who's of course uh, uh, you know one of the primary writers of the film, uh, it is something of a at least amateur medievalist, uh, and has certainly read plenty of medieval literature itself. So he's not just—he's uh, not just doing the the film is not merely doing you know sort of parodies of modern Arthurian adaptations. Uh, they really are dealing with some medieval stuff, and you can definitely, uh, I think, you can definitely, uh, you know, see and hear some of the the real familiarity with the medieval tradition, uh, the medieval Arthurian tradition that lies behind a lot of this film. Um, and the second thing that I would say is, you know, Mallory, whether or not they're actually thinking of Mallory, you know, when they're making these particular scenes, Mallory is just, you know goes on to become so dominant. I mean, it's, it's to me, it's fascinating when you reflect back on the role of sort of the position of Maori in the history of, of the Arthurian tradition. Um, I mean, really kind of in the history of literature actually, but in the, in, in the, the, the Arthurian tradition in particular, you know, he sees himself, uh, and we, you know, we talked about this several times, he sees himself as sort of the culmination, um, you know, the, the sort of the final modern, you know, to him, modern retelling, right, of all, you know, bringing together all of this authentic material, all the authentic material that he can find, right? And so he is building this, like, big, compendious, single story, right? Um, all of the Arthurian stories, not you know, he's not trying to write something new. He's not trying to, you know, kind of blow your mind, right, with things, you know, uh, uh, like a modern author would, right? A modern author would be all about, like, here's a hot new angle on King Arthur, right? That's not how they thought in the Middle Ages. He wasn't trying to give us something hot and new. He was just trying to uh, bring together everything in this kind of definitive way, right? As well as, of course, bringing it into English, right? Translating into English a lot of it. So, uh, you know, he sees himself as this sort of culmination, right? Uh, uh, you know, uh, and he is, so he is kind of the end point of the medieval Arthurian uh, uh, tradition. But, of course, he succeeds wonderfully, right? So wonderfully that he does indeed become the primary transmitter of the Arthurian story from the Middle Ages into uh, the later world, into the modern world, right? So that everybody from, you know, early days, right? From from Edmund Spencer, who is, uh, you know, a major Arthurian guy. The Fairy Queen is is ultimately an Arthurian work. Um, not quite so focused and not of nearly of anything like the same kind that Mallory is. Um, but still, from, from, from Spencer and on, of course, through the, 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 the more modern stuff, through... 
you know, uh, whether you're looking at Sir Walter Scott or you're looking at uh, uh, Tennyson or, 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 you know, T.H. White and on, uh, you know, Disney, you're, <laughs> you're, you're dealing with Maori, right? Maori is sort of becomes the, the end point. Nobody reads the French books anymore. People just read Maori. Maori is like the ultimate root source. Again, that's not to say that everybody follows Maori that, you know, exactly or anything, but, um, but he becomes, you know, so, so he is at this sort of pivot point. You know, I kind of imagine it almost like, you know, there's this, you know, broad Arthurian tradition that kind of, you know, he kind of focuses it down and, and narrows it down into this one work. Right. And then afterwards, you know, it kind of goes out again. So it's shaped like a shaped like an hourglass. Right. And, and Mallory is the pivot. Mallory is the hinge uh, uh, at the middle of it. Um, so, uh, yeah, Howard Pyle. Absolutely, uh, Tim. And I know Mike was bringing up uh, Howard Pyle as well. Um, yeah. Absolutely. No, I mean, Mallory is, is the, 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 the primary source, and it's very clear that Howard Pyle is working pretty closely off of Mallory uh, in many places. Um, anyhow, so, okay. Um, oh, Tim, we're, we can see some video. We'll definitely see video. Uh, I, can, I can bring up particular scenes if you want to look at particular scenes. Um, but um, anyway, um, okay, so as I say, having now preambled again, uh, let's look at some of these scenes where I think we can see the film closely parodying the medieval Arthur, the Mallory Arthur. Um, We have, of course, the parody of knightly valor. Um, I think that the the combat between King Arthur and the Black Knight uh, is a delightfully... Uh, Malorian moment, right? We have so many different elements uh, that we see again and again in Mallory uh, uh, cropping up here, right? On the one hand, we get uh, the, the, obviously the conflict between two, you know, the questing knight, right? The knight errant, which Arthur is still in knight errant mode, right? By himself with only his trusty servant, Patsy. Um, and uh, he encounters this other night champion and they fight for really no good reason at all, except wait, there is a good reason. Well, no, there's a reason anyway. And the reason is that the knight is guarding the crossing of a river. Um, and so therefore they must fight like presumably to the death, uh, because he wants to cross the river and the other guy wants to keep him from crossing for no obvious reason. And of course we saw exactly that situation play out at least twice, right? I'm pretty sure, if I'm remembering correctly, both Sir Lakot Maltau and Sir Gareth uh, encountered that kind of issue uh, during their uh, during their uh, their battles. Of course, we can already see the directions that the parody is going, apart from the general horselessness of almost every single night uh, throughout the film. Uh, the fact that the the fact that the 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 river that's being guarded, right, is um, you know this <laughs> like tiny tiny little stream that you could easily hop across uh, yourself emphasizes the fact that this this is not a fight that is about necessity, right? It's not this is not somebody who is defending the frontier from incursion. This is just randomly picking a fight because you can. I really like the fact that you'll notice some of the details that they have here. Notice the the shield hanging on the tree in the background. That happens all the time, 
right? I mean, think about the number of times we've had, you know, a knight who has shields hanging on the tree. You come up and smite the shield and he comes out and fights you, right? Uh, I guess that's what happens if you come from the other side, right? If you come from this side, he's already blocking the bridge. Um, uh, yeah, Karita, the fact that the knights are designated by color, right? That we have the, the black knight. We did, in fact, meet a couple black knights, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um... <laughs> oh, the the accuracy of the sword fighting, Mike, is hilarious. I love the sort of the action sequence uh, between uh, between Arthur uh, and the Black Knight. Of course, the injuries sustained by the Black Knight is again yet another uh, delightful parody of what we see happening uh, in Maori, right? Where people are always sustaining these horrible wounds. Um, like getting impaled by lances uh, as Sir Bors and Sir Gawain. Remember when Sir Bors and Sir Gawain skewer each other with their lances on the battlefield in the fight outside Joyous Guard? But like they're both okay, right? We take them back, and like all you need to do is find a find a hermit uh, who uh, who says, "Oh, I can have him back up," you know, in you know no time. Give me three, four weeks, and it'll be fine. Um, uh, anyway, so, um, yeah, <laughs> David, yes, I do love how Arthur dismounts uh, to fight the Black Knight chivalrously on foot. Yes, yes, a wonderful moment there. Um, notice the direction in which the parody is going here, right? What is being, what they, what they are emphasizing in the parody, right? Um, let's look at the, because this is the, uh, this is the big the most um, the biggest combat right we get lots of individual com- we get lots of nightly combat obviously that's a major fixation of 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 Maori's a, a major interest in the story um, we get um, uh, lots of one-on-one nightly combats, right? Trials by combat and that kind of thing. This is the only real time that we get real combat in this entire film, right? This entire film contains almost no combat, which again, I think is another element of parody actually, right? You know, we get um, the, you know, that wonderful scene when Sir Lancelot is stabbing the animals that the French uh, taunters are throwing over the walls at them and everything, right? Um, but, uh, you know, we get them fighting the, the, the white rabbit, but we we never, other than in this scene, get them actually fighting with other knights. And so here's the great hero fight. I move for no man. So be it! I love this. It just it's the, com- the completely unnecessary parry. It's just sticking out your sword. Although he stays bent over so he can get hit on the head. Now stand aside, worthy adversary. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. Well, what's that then? I've heard worse. You lie. Come on. <laughs> um, the uh, <laughs> okay. So the sound did come through. Good. I'm glad the sound uh, 
the sound came through successfully there. Did you guys on Twitch get it also? I hope you guys on Twitch also were getting the, uh, the audio feed there. Uh, tried to set it up properly before class today, which is one reason why it took a couple minutes longer. Um, uh, yeah, so Stephen, I don't think that it is true that John Cleese plays both the Black Knight and Sir Lancelot, and I don't think it's supposed to be Sir Lancelot in different armor. Um, that's actually one uh, Maori trope that we do not get in this film, which is knights disguising themselves and being mistaken for somebody else, right? Um, uh, so that's uh, uh, that's. I actually sort of, I'm always a little bit disappointed by that. I sort of, but you know, whatever, it's fine. Uh, They can't do everything. Right. Um, But um, here we see again, all like in the abstract, you could do like a pro summary of this scene and it would sound like it was like checking all the boxes, right. Of the classic nightly combat. The thing that's emphasized is, the absurdity of it, right? Uh, the, uh, uh, Arthur is very noble, right? The Black Knight is very brave, uh, uh, very determined to uh, uh, defend this crossing of this river, which I don't even, I'm not even sure there's water in there at all. Um, but anyway, uh, and yet the whole thing is absurd. It's made to be absurd, Right. The absurdity of it is what is uh, being emphasized, the way in which the distance from what anything that a a modern person would call sensible. Right. uh, Is the thing that gets uh, uh, emphasized. Ludicrous, uh, Stephen, exactly, is the is the 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 angle that they go for uh, here. And Stephen, you are absolutely right throughout the the thing which makes this film such a success. I, 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 you know, the MVP of this film is Graham Chapman, uh, who is playing King Arthur, of course, and almost no other roles, very few other roles uh, throughout the film. Um, His straight man delivery, you know, his sort of Shakespearean acting throughout this film is uh, uh, absolutely what makes the comedy of of the entire thing run. Um, Yeah, (laughs) you're right, Ben. The Black Knight has even set up his pavilion uh, back there. I hope he doesn't have a bed in it. Um, uh, But uh, but yes. okay. so here this is uh, again one example of uh, of close parody. Let's look at some other uh, examples because there are plenty. We, of course, have the extreme temptation of Sir Galahad. Uh, this, I think, is one of the very closest to Mallory, and not just close to Mallory, but really fairly idiosyncratic um, uh, for uh, for Mallory and Mallory's quest for the Holy Grail, which is, of course, based closely on the French. But again, after Mallory, very few people read the French book anymore. Um, so, the, you know, this, uh, you know, we are but fourscore young blondes and young blondes and brunettes all between the age of 16 and 19 and a half, right? Uh, you know, is, uh, uh, just a wonderful send up, um, of, uh, the, the, 
outrageous temptations that are arranged, especially uh, for Percival, of course. Uh, Galahad is, I mean, he's called Galahad the Pure and Galahad the Chaste. Uh, so they make fun of the whole virginity thing, right? The whole masculine virginity thing, culminating in, you know, Sir Galahad's I could stay a bit longer uh, at the end of this here, right? Um, but um, the way that they set this up, and now notice that here, it's not exactly the 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 sort of objection, right? The 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 kind of parody, you know, the, the the essence of the parody. It's not ludicrousness in the same way, right? It's over the top, but again, a lot of remember, like Percival. No, this was Bors. Sorry, Bors had, you know, the the damsels lining the parapets of the castle, all threatening to throw themselves off if he refused to sleep with their lady, right? That's pretty over the top already, right? Uh, So they're not really doing much more than that. Um, So, anyway, um, with the temptation of Sir Galahad here, the essence of the parody here, sort of the thrust of the parody, is not towards absurdity. Um... Uh, they, Michael Palin plays this pretty, uh, pretty straight, right? He is, he is, uh, a chaste and innocent Galahad, right? Uh, who is very determined to find the grail. The, the kind of the core, I mean, he, he does get a little susceptible at the end, um, uh, leading of course to the wonderful, let me go back in there and face the peril sequence with Sir Lancelot at the end. Um, but... Yeah, uh, Dolly, exactly. The fake grail. Um, What they do with this, like in the grail temptations upon which this scene is based, right? There's a reversal, right? This sort of reveal which shows that not everything is as it seemed to be, right? Um, Except here it's not the ladies who turn out to be devils in disguise, right? Um, it's the portent, which turns out to be a fake portent, right? Somebody lit the grail, you know, uh, you know, Zoot lit the grail-shaped beacon. Um, she's just, she's set set fire to our beacon, which I've just remembered is grail-shaped, right? Uh, so he has seen this vision in the air, right? The grail hovering above uh, the castle, and it turns out to be entirely, uh, entirely, uh, 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 mundane, right? And accidental. So instead of having what looks to be, you know, this um, enticing situation turn out to be only a dangerous temptation and the ladies vanish in a puff of foul smelling smoke because they turn out to be, uh, uh, turn out to be demons, as would certainly happen uh, in the Grail Quest, as did happen to both Percival and Bors during the Grail Quest. Um, Here, the whole conception of it, right? The entire, uh, the, the, the mysticism gets punctured. It turns out to be, in fact, not supernatural at all. Uh, just an otherwise un- unexplained castle uh, full of ladies. Um, one of the things that I want to be thinking about, one of the things that I want us to be looking at um, Because I do ultimately want to try to draw some conclusions about sort of how this works, right? And obviously, it goes without saying that this movie is very funny, right? Um, But 
I really like to think about what is it exactly that makes it funny? What is the pattern of how, cause you can be funny in lots of different ways, right? Um, what are the patterns that emerge here? What, what is this film doing? How does it work as an adaptation? How does it work as a parody? Cause you can do lots of different kinds of parody. Uh, and parody is a wonderful vehicle, uh, for commenting on things, right? So, the, the, the big question that I kind of want to get to an answer to by the end of our time here uh, is where's the film taking us, right? How is it relating itself? How is it, um, in the, at the end of the day, how is it handling the Arthurian stuff? What is it doing with it? Um, yeah. And uh, Tim, it's certainly true that it's very silly, right? And they are being very silly with it. Um, but again, that is, um, it's stopping well short of really answering the question, right? Um, yeah. Um, all right, let's keep going. Uh, we also, of course, do get damaged brain pans. This is another, uh, the fact that Sir, that Sir Lancelot in the, in, uh, uh, the tale of Sir Lancelot, right, um, ends up going around and slaughtering everybody, uh, including lots of unarmed people who are just standing there minding nobody's business is kind of a savage satire, um, of Lancelot's misfortunes, you know, his unhap. Uh, at the end of the story, I don't think this is actually meant to be Sir Harris, but um, he certainly he certainly <laughs> uh, uh, gets carried away, right, and ends up killing way more people uh, than he plans um, uh, than <laughs> than he plans to uh, to uh, to kill. And again, this is that is certainly. Uh, one of the moments that I would say is is very much a Mallory moment. But you look at how this scene works, right? What are the primary elements here? What what is uh, so? Let's go. Let's go to the. Let's go to that here. We'll come back to scene twenty four. If you think about the different moments in this scene, right? It gets set up with the discussion between uh, Herbert and his father, right? And the primary, uh, the primary dimension here uh, in the beginning of the scene is this conflict between romance and pragmatism, right? Um, you know, Herbert, who would rather just sing, right? Uh, and uh, his father, who says, you're not doing a song while I'm here, right? And who is focused on money and land, right? We live in a bloody swamp. We need all the land that we can get, uh, he tells him, right? And then, of course, is trying to uh, 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 negotiate a merger or union uh, between <laughs> between Lancelot and Herbert's uh, widow, right? Or almost widow. Um, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in the, in the film, I love the way that the, you know, the, the sort of the Lancelot's moment. And again, Lancelot also notice all of the knights, almost all of the knights like Graham Chapman are, you know, do this straight man thing. Right. Um, I like Concord. He just walks and now, around. The big one. Oh, come on, Concord. Message for you, sir. 
Imprisoned by my father, who wishes me to marry against my will. Please, please, please come and rescue me. I am in the tall tower of Swamp Castle at last. I call, a cry of distress. This could be the sign that leads us to the Holy Grail. Brave, brave Concord, you shall not have died in vain. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite dead, sir. Well, you shall not have been mortally wounded in vain. I, I think I, I could pull through, sir. Oh, I see. Actually, I think I'm all right to come with you. No, no, sweet Concord, stay here. I will send help as soon as I've accomplished a daring and heroic rescue in my own particular... Idiom, sir? Idiom! No, I feel fine, actually. Farewell, sweet Concord! I'll, um... I'll just stay here, then, shall I, sir? <laughs> Lancelot, like Herbert, right, who is all about singing his song and wants the girl that he marries to have a certain special something, right? Um, uh, and who, who pens very swiftly that note uh, which he attaches to the arrow and shoots out the window. Um, Herbert and Lancelot are on the same, the same track, right? Both of them are living in this romance world, Right. Um, uh, the 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 world of, uh, you know, uh, rescuing knights who champion the 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 well, usually the ladies in distress. Right. Um, and, uh, uh, and and I love Lancelot's line. This may be the sign that leads us to the Holy Grail. Right. Um, he is taking the adventures uh, that are that are that are coming to him. Right. And trusting that if he pursues those adventures and does the right thing it will you know that this is this is this is a breakthrough right the fact that this uh adventure has come his way is a breakthrough both of them both herbert and lancelot living in this fantasy world which nobody else is living in right um and you'll notice how it's the fantasy world that brings lancelot down right as he is going through and and massacring people So there's a gap here, right? A gap between the world that Lancelot is living in and the world that everybody else is living in, right? Um, his one-sided ha-has as he is attacking people. Um, uh, and yeah, Karina, I love the guards' non-reactions. The hey from the one at the door, and then this guy who has remained absolutely stock still and doesn't even move when Lancelot hits him with his sword, right? Um, other than to topple over, uh, uh, you know, still again rigidly holding this same position. Um, so again, notice this... The, the, we get this romance world, right? We get it from Herbert and it looks silly and we get it from Lancelot and it looks insane. Um, and notice how it's even in Lancelot's own frame, it's artificial, right? 
he's going to attempt a daring and, her and heroic rescue in his own particular idiom. And the fact that he can't remember the word idiom, right, um, uh, draws attention to that word, right? That he is deliberately seeking to be in a particular kind of story and within that story to act in a particular kind of way, right? But everybody else is living in a completely different and a far, a far more mundane world, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and Brandon, I absolutely agree. The, the, the kind of the random letter that Lancelot finds. The only thing, uh, Brandon, that I would add, if that were in Mallory, right, um, it would, the, the, the message that he received would turn out to be from a sorceress queen who only sent out the message to entrap him, right, uh, is, is the only way that I think uh, that it might differ uh, in Mallory. Um, and so, yeah, the, uh, the, on the one hand, as I suggested before, we're getting a direct parody of, you know, there's a reason that this scene is given to Lancelot and not to anybody else, right? And that, I think, has Mallory's fingerprints all over it. Uh, and in particular, again, Lancelot getting carried away. He's the guy who gets carried away and kills more people than he should. Um, I'm sorry, I just get carried away. Sorry, everyone. Sorry, right? Uh, as he says to them, um, and then immediately starts killing them again, right? As soon as he, uh, uh, as soon as he is even very modestly uh, uh, provoked. Um, so, um, whereas in the first clip, right, with the Black Knight, the whole world that they were living in, right is made to, to look and to feel ludicrous, right? Um, here we see half of the world makes a kind of sense, right? Um, we have this sort of the practical down-to-earth world of the scheming uh, 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 Lord of Swamp Castle. Is he given a name? I don't think he's given a name uh, at any point in the narrative. Um, and then we have this artificial world that is uh, projected onto it, projected literally in Lancelot's case, as he's uh, clearly seeing different things. Um, uh, so, okay. What else do we have? What else do we see? Mysterious recluses, right? Once again, of course, they do manage to find their way. How do they know where to go? How do they know where to find the Holy Grail? Well, they come across a random hermit uh, who's able to tell them cryptically, right? Um, and this scene is interesting because... Um, oh, Karita, by the way, sorry. By the way, Karita, I agree with you. I do think that the scheming is being mocked a little bit. We absolutely are laughing at the Lord of Swamp Castle as well. I don't mean to imply... Um, that it's just the romance plot, right? That it's just Lancelot. Uh, in fact, you could argue, Carita, that the romance plot wins. Uh, I mean, Herbert survives, right? And not only does he s improbably... I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the few instances of, like, uh, something almost miraculous actually happening in the story, Right. Um, is when when Herbert falls from the uh, from the uh, from the top of the tall tower uh, and is saved at the last minute, right? And not only is he saved miraculously, uh, but he gets to sing a song about it, right? So th it, there is certainly a way in which the romance 
world sort of wins. Though again, the the final the final image is really ambiguous, right? Um, So, uh, though he fell a long, long way. Uh, so they're doing the song, right, to celebrate the, uh, the, the miraculous recovery. Uh, and he's going to escape dramatically, which is going to put the final uh, touches, right, to the romance plot. Uh, Lancelot is struggling because the story has kind of gotten away from him in several different directions, right? Now he no longer has... He has he does have a particular idiom, uh, which is, of course, very violence-oriented, and he no longer knows what to do, so he's got to escape more dramatically. Uh, so, of course, he's going to swing his way out on a rope. I'm saying we kind of undercuts it a little bit. Somebody give me a push. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, of course, that fails. Anyway, lots that we can see there. Um, but going back to um, the mysterious recluses, right? Um, this, this scene is interesting because it's one of, the f- one of the few scenes in the entire film where everyone is almost everyone is acting straight. Like it's just a straight dramatic scene, which doesn't get absurd uh, in the same way that so much of the, like, again, we don't get into, you know, think about the, the shift in tone with the black Knight, right? Um, They're maintaining this high dramatic tone until uh, he starts losing limbs. Right. And then his, register drops, right? Oh, I don't know, eh? Right? Chicken, chicken, right? He's no longer uh, on that high register, right? It becomes overtly, um, overtly ludicrous. Arthur, of course, never, Graham Chapman never drops his, uh, his, his level, um, but the others do, right? Uh, anyway, let's see, back to um, scene 24 here. Stop. <laughs> and this enchanter of whom you speak, he has seen the grail. Where does he live? Old man, where does he live? He knows of a cave. A cave which no man has entered. And the grail, the grail is there? There is much danger. Beyond the cave lies the gorge of eternal peril, which no man has ever crossed. But the grail! Where is the grail? Seek you the bridge of death. The bridge of death which leads to the grail? Okay. Let's think about this scene a little bit, right? If this, it's it's impractical. But if this were the first scene of the film, right? If this if the film opened either with this scene or this way, 
right? I don't think that we would know which, like how we're supposed to take this. Um, this seems a little bit absurd, but it's only absurd in the way that scenes like this in the book often are absurd. Um, the random finding of a random recluse who gives them unsolicited prophetic advice, uh, which they don't understand. Right. And then, you know, and we even get it, it ends like the mysterious visions, uh, in the quest for the Holy Grail often do. Right. Um, like remember when Lancelot wakes up and finds his, his horse, gone, right? For instance. Uh, so it's a kind of scene that we get, that there are things about it that are silly, but nothing is overtly silly. Again, in the way that we do get clear silliness from scene one with the swallows and, uh, uh, and you know, the, the, the sort of sudden shifts that we get with the French taunters and things like that. We don't get any of that in this scene, right? Um, now, because it's not the beginning, uh, because it's not, um, uh, because it's not, we've already established several of the things that we've already been looking at. We've established this sort of, this sort of the gap, uh, between like the world that we live in and the world that these people are living in. Right. Um, we're sort of prepared for the fact that ultimately what is being introduced to them here is probably going to end up being silly, but it isn't obviously silly in this moment, right? Now we can still see uh, some ways in which they are making fun of when this kind of thing happens in Mallory, right? Um, the hermit is not a priest. He's this weird, filthy, nasty-looking vagabond, right? Um, more mysterious than the hermits are, right? Um, in that he suddenly vanishes and they find themselves, right, alone, as we were just looking there at the end. You know, his the hut and the, uh, uh, and the hermit himself just disappear. Um, the hideous cackling, right, like as if he were insane, also... Very different, right? Uh, Dollar Stroke says in Maori, no one ever stops to ask someone to clarify their prophecy. Yeah, that is true. Um, but um, anyway, and I agree, Karita, the hermits in the book are much more helpful. Um, one of the things, of course, that scene 24, on the one hand, there are definitely elements from Maori that I think that we can see. You know, again, the random prophetic hermit uh, is sort of an obvious one. But it's segueing into the most non-Mallory scene, I think, uh, of the entire film, uh, and that's the Knights Who Say Knee, right? This is not... There's nothing French about this, right? This is very Celtic Arthurian. The mist and the shapes in the mist and the horned helmets... And the strange words, um, <laughs> just like Welsh. Uh, 
And then, of course, you know, down to the, you know, cut down the mightiest tree in the forest with a herring. That's actually it's less absurd than some of the challenges that are that are given to folks in, you know, some of the old, uh, uh, you know, like in the the Arthurian stories from the Welsh Mabinogian. Right. Um, That would actually be uh, totally mainstream in the Mabinogian. Um, so it's silly, but it's silly in, in, in like the precise way in which a Celtic legend often seems silly, uh, to, uh, uh, to us. So this is the, this is, that was of course a wonderful scene, but it's one of the scenes, as I say, which seems to me least like least, uh, uh, dependent upon Maori himself, uh, and drawing from a drawing from a quite different tradition. So there are some elements of scene 24 in the way that, that, uh, get that, that, that leads straight into, to this one as well. So it's less, that's why we get, the hermit is not a priestly hermit, right? He's a crazy cackling hermit who vanishes and doesn't just prophesy, doesn't just interpret, and certainly doesn't uh, try to do confession at the end. Um, but uh, more elements, prophetic inscriptions, not uh, guilt of course, we don't have uh, gold letters, uh, but fortunately, we do have prophetic inscriptions which tell us uh, where to go. And I love the the, the most uh, Maori element, uh, uh, Malorian element of uh, of this scene is when they say, "Of course, Joseph of Arimathea." Of course, <laughs> right? Everything's about Joseph of Arimathea. By the time you get to the end of uh, the que- the you know the the quest of the Sancreal, uh in Maori, we're all ready to say the same thing. Um, uh, and I love the way in which the prophetic inscription is extremely explicit, right? Except for obviously the uh, the confusion at the end. Um, uh, but of course, um, the amusing, th- the, 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 the funniest thing about the inscription, right, um, is the way, of course, it, although it seems like it's mistaken or, uh, you know, it's, um, it turns out to be quite literally true. <laughs> In surprise and alarm. Well, does it say anything else? No. <laughs> wouldn't bother to carve. <laughs> he wouldn't bother to carve. Ah. He who is valiant and pure of spirit may find the Holy Grail in the castle of... What? The castle of... What is it? He must, must have, have died, died while carving it. Oh, come on. Well, that's, well, that's what, what it says. says. Look, if he was dying, he wouldn't bother to carve. Ah, he'd just he'd say it. it. Well, that's, well, that's what's what carved in the rock. Perhaps he was dictating. Oh, shut up. Well, does it say anything else? No. Just, ah. Ah. Just lose him in the, come on. Where's that? Oh, 
the legendary black be- black beast of arm. And so, of course, the inscription turns out to be exactly accurate. Um, uh, so okay, so we 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 check off that element, right? We're we're uh, uh, we're getting there, but of course, you'll notice how, as so often happens, it trails off into apparent nonsense or ridiculousness, right? Uh, we're coming to what sounds like a perfectly serious inscription, right? Um, about testing the purity of the spirit and everything, just like we would expect for the Holy Grail quest. Um, and then the final word is the anticlimax. The final word is uh, uh, the comedy as is emphasized, right? By their, um, uh, by their all, all of their grunting and uh, and awing as they're thinking about it, right? Um, but of course, remember that Arthur continues to take this perfectly seriously all the way until the end, right? The castle ah, right? Um, our quest is at an end. He is going to say, right? Um, one way or another the end of that inscription doesn't seem quite right, right? Um, and yet the fact that it seems to turn out to be exactly right and that Arthur certainly takes it perfectly seriously um, uh, is... Uh, shows again the world that he is living in, right? Which looks... and Which ends up looking and sounding ridiculous because he's not does not seem to be aware uh of how ridiculous that is um more uh more examples of course we get to the bridge the bridge of death and we have tests of worthiness now again this is one of the primary things that they abandon fairly completely uh is the real the, you know, the, the, the Christian element, right? Um, they are not real serious about, and when I say they're not serious about the Christian stuff, it's not that I, it's not about them taking it seriously. It's about them joking seriously about it, right? That's not something that they choose as a premise, uh, for their humor. I'm not saying they never, uh, hold the Christian elements up for ridicule. Of course, the PA Yezu Domine section is one of the biggest examples, right? Uh, of that, um, uh, and obviously the uh, uh, the vision from God when he sends them on the quest for the Holy Grail in the first place. Um, but the Christian element of the Holy Grail uh, itself, the emphasis on penitence, the, em- the emphasis on chastity, um, we get nothing but the very occasional jokes about that, right? So the final test of worthiness... Um, he who is valiant and pure of spirit uh, is what we get in that inscription, right? And that, though kind of vague and deliberately corny, right, does seem to be the premise that they stick with here, even at the bridge of death, right? Um, there are two of the knights who are passed by, right? Who are allowed to pass the bridge, who are only asked simple questions about themselves. They know who they are, 
right? If they know themselves at all, right, then they're able to pass. And that's Lancelot and Galahad. Now, Galahad, of course, is cast into the Gorge of Eternal Peril uh, because he doesn't remember correctly what his, what his parrot color is, right? Um, but he's not given the stumper question like Sir Robin is when Sir Robin is cast down. Uh, so the, the, the test of worthiness uh, is fairly simple. The joke, right, where the jokes come in um, at the Bridge of Death is when the simple questions about your own identity, right, which, again, the questions seem to be determined by your purity of spirit, right, uh, by your valor and by your, your purity of spirit, Um we shift to like an unexpectedly difficult trivia question, right? Which is what Sir Robin gets, which throws him in. And of course, which Arthur then turns around, uh, on, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the keeper of the bridge of death, who of course turns out to have been the hermit, uh, uh, the old man from scene 24, as Arthur says, I also love the fact that, um, Arthur is suddenly full of information, Right. Um, and this is a thing which seems to me to happen on uh, uh, a number of occasions, right? Um, when all of a sudden, just people just know. There it is! The Bridge of Death! Oh, right. Look! There's the old man from scene 24. He is the keeper of the Bridge of Death. He asks each traveler five questions. Three questions. Three questions. He who answers the five questions. Three questions. Three questions may cross in safety. But what if you get a question wrong? Then you are cast into the gorge of eternal peril. Oh, what now? Who's going to answer the questions? Sir Robin. Yes? Brave Sir Robin, you go. Hey. <laughs> um... The five three thing is just uh, because Monty Python are the absolute kings of the running joke. Uh, nobody does running jokes better than Monty Python does. Um, but um, Arthur's speech here, right? Um, he just, I, I like. There's no source to his information, right? Uh, he just all of a sudden knows all of these things. Um, and again, this is like Galahad is just like that in the quest for the Holy Grail, right? That's always happening to Galahad, um, where they or, or like think about Percival's sister, right? Who can suddenly explain everything, right? Um, uh, but yeah, you do have to know these things when you're a king. Um, yeah, so uh, the way, the sort of the way in which these kinds of I don't want to say holes in the plot, uh, but the, the, the way in which this information all gets supplied, you know, and that's definitely a kind of a, a, a Mallory trope, I think. Um, and of course we get the epic transport. This whole sequence is really fascinating. Sort of the last great cell, right? As Arthur and Bedivere are, going in the last segment, right? And we get the dramatic music. The scenery, oh man. I love the random mist, right? 
strange magic boats coming to pick them up. drop to their knees and pray having achieved the holy island right which is kind of avalon like because this is sort of a lake that they're in right they're not out at sea which is where normally people go in the magic boats um they've not come to the holy land as as uh, you know galahad and the rest of them did Though otherwise it also looks very like that, right? So it's like, you know, are they in Avalon? Are they, is this the Holy Isle? Um, in any case, this is the miraculous ending of their quest. The soundtrack in this section is absolutely brilliant, right? As it is swelling to this uh, wonderful climax and they drop to their knees. That went on for a really long time. We haven't laughed at anything, right, in a really long time. God, we thank thee that thou hast vouchsafed to us the most holy. Jesus Christ! Hello, daffy English kniggets, and Monsieur Arthur King, who has the brain of a duck, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, the most crushing anticlimax, and absolutely, Stephen, the French are there ahead of the British, right? Um,. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what are you doing in England? <laughs> Galahad says to the French taunters the first time, right? Mind your own business. Uh, uh, which is a, both a delightful commentary on um, the political situation in the 14th and 15th century between England and France. Uh, but also, of course, I can't help but think, Arthur, exactly uh, of the of the French books, right? Uh, that the French did come first, right? And how Maori is always uh, translating this out of the French. Um, uh, not to mention, remember that, like, we, you know, Lancelot himself and all of his kin are all French. Uh, and so, you know, we have this whole French thing going on uh, there as well. Um, but anyway, the, the crushing anti, um, anti-climax here at the end of this most sweeping moment Right. And this seems like it doesn't like you can't get a bigger anticlimax uh, than this here. Right. And notice how the whole thing gets undermined. It's not only that their quest does not end in the way that it looks like it's going to end, but everything, all of the epic music and it gets completely undermined. Because remember what they do after this? They've just sailed on the magic boat to this island. And when they leave, they wade back across. Right? I mean, they end up back in the same place. 
<laughs> right here. And they've just waded across. They haven't even, like, the whole lake turns out to be less than waist deep uh, as they as they, they, they come across. Again, everything is diminished, right? Now, instead of this being the magic isle and, that you know, it's just, you know, uh, this isn't even a real lake. It's just kind of a, it's just kind of a, a you know, an overflow. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, and you can see where it's possible to have walked there on dry land, right? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like the whole, the whole, everything, the the entire, uh, the entire epic, that whole, you know, romance world that we were invited fully into, right, along with Arthur and Bedivere there for just a little bit, uh, has been thoroughly punctured right here at the end. Um, But notice how interesting that is. That romance world has been mocked at times, like in the Black Knight sequences we saw at first, Um, has been, we've seen the gap between it and, you know, the kind of more recognizable uh, sort of mundane world, right? As in the tale of Sir Lancelot. And yet we're still being asked to invest in it at the end, right? Um, until the anticlimax. So, and then of course we get the final, the, the, the final drama as I was talking about. There are lots of other moments where I think we can see them really having fun with the Arthurian tradition in ways which, to me, resonate much more powerfully after Mallory. One, of course, is the puzzling indifference uh, to King Arthur at the beginning of the story, right? You know, he keeps deliver, trying to deliver this really important message, right? That he is Arthur, King of the Britons, uh, he says. Um, and nobody even understands who he is or what he's talking about, right? Uh, it does not go at all like it seems like it's supposed to go. And the guards on the wall, right, in the first this first castle that he comes to at the very beginning of the film won't even introduce him to their lord because they don't even care enough. Uh, They're just, all they're interested in is the coconuts and where he got them, right? And then talking about swallows. Um, So, again, that seems... uh, This is the, the sort of irony there, right? As we're sort of set up to imagine that King Arthur is a really big deal, right? And then the very first people he meets in the film don't even care about him at all. Um, again, when we think back to the beginning of Mallory and Arthur having to establish himself and the resistance of some of the barons and, and him, remember how many times he had to pull the sword out of the stone before anybody would take him seriously, right? Um, is, um, uh, I, again, I think that we can see uh, them kind of playing rather outrageously with that here. Um, even some small things. So the witch sequence, right? Um, which I find very funny, but one of the, one of the scenes, which is for most of the time, least connected with Maori or indeed with any Arthur, you know, medieval Arthurian tradition, um, witch hunts and, uh, 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 you know, burning witches and stuff like this is much less a medieval thing than it is a Renaissance thing. Um, and so they're kind of eliding some things here. But we get that uh, that touch which does make me think very much of Maori at the very end, 
right? And I will admit to you, I saw this movie about, um, I don't know how many times. Like when I was in middle school and high school, I don't even know how many times I saw this movie before I really noticed how this scene ended. Well, well, we did do the nose, the nose, and the hat. But she's a witch. So, it seems like we know where we are here, right? Uh, you know, the 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 humor lies right in. The ignorance of the, you know, the, the sort of the gap, the fact that, you know, we can all see what's going on here. Right. And how 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 fake this is and how eager they are just to burn a witch for any reason. Right. But and this would be funny. Right. This is this is that would be really, really funny just on its own. Right. How stupid the peasants are and how comically over the top is their desire to burn witches. Right. What do we burn apart from witches? More witches, right? And then, of course, the extra then layer of comedy with Sir Bedivere's scientific logic, right? Uh, Leading them to the wonderful conclusion, if she weighs the same as a duck, then she's made of wood and therefore a witch, right? Um, So, you know, the only thing then that ends up being funnier than the ignorance and aggression of the peasants uh, is the pseudo-logic and pseudo-science of uh, of Sir Bedivere here. But again, it's the ending of the scene that I never... that I missed time and time again. It's a fair cop, she says. Um, She is a witch. (laughs) She does, in fact, weigh the same as a duck. They're not cheating, right? And she admits it. It's a fair cop, right? She's, in fact, a witch at the end. So the fact that that we have, like, this (laughs) random, bizarre sorceress cropping up out of nowhere unexpectedly every time you turn around. Uh, you know, we, uh, that is, it's again, this is not a scene, as I said, uh, that I find very closely connected, uh, really to the Arthurian tradition specifically, but the twist at the end, uh, again, how we, we, we thought we knew where we were all the way through, right? This whole scene. The question was just who was going to end up looking more absurd, Sir Bedivere or the peasants, right? Except it turns out that all of them are then justified in the end. Uh, as in fact, she does turn out to be a witch. Like, yes, they strapped a parsnip to her face, which, it, you know, made her look like, but you are dressed as one, she says. How do you know she is a witch? She looks like one. Um, but she is, right? They're all perfectly right. Um, and uh, anyway... That 
there really are sorceresses, uh, these uh, uh, who obviously studied nigromancy uh, at some of these. Uh, she must have gone to one of those convent schools. Um, is uh, a fascinating twist. And this scene, by the way, this is one of the. I can't think, and you tell me if you can think of other examples. I can think of very few examples of this kind of thing in the film. This is a very unusual scene in the film because it's one of the things that pushes in the opposite direction. Usually, it's they're wanting to draw attention to that gap, right? Um, they're always the characters, in fact, you know, many of the characters who are playing it straight, right? Who are who appear to be seriously invested in this world, you know, in this romance world of marvels and uh, and adventures, right? Um, Arthur always, all the way through, most of the nights, uh, uh, you know, of, of the primary, of the nights of the round table at all times. But we as viewers are often being reminded they are made to look at times like they don't really belong in the world with the rest of everybody else, right? Um, uh, Swamp Castle being one example of that, as I was saying. But here, they get justified. I guess you could argue that uh, Herbert's not dying when he falls out of the tall tower uh, is kind of similar to the sudden reveal that she is, in fact, a witch at the end of this scene. Um, Another place where that romance element seems to be vindicated, right? When it seems to be completely out of touch with reality, it ends up getting vindicated. Um, uh, Yeah, but... um, yeah, see, uh, no, see, Ben, I don't think they do manipulate the scales. Uh, she just weighs the same as a duck, and she admits it. She says it's a fair cop, right? That they, they've, they've, they've got. To, she, she confesses to being a witch when she's caught. Um, uh, yeah, that's Ben. That's what I thought for a long time. I, I, I thought. That the, you know they were they were just cheating and uh, dragging her off, uh, you know, like they 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 pulled down the scales and made sure she weighed the same, and so they got their excuse to drag her off and uh, and 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 burn her. But I do not believe that that's what's happening. And anyway, that that would be a a, a kind of that would be different than what we see in, I think, almost anywhere else in this film. We don't get that kind of, that kind of dark comedy um, where we see this innocent woman being dragged off to be burned uh, as a witch and we're kind of asked to just laugh at that. Um, that's not the kind of way that the humor works in this film, uh, really all the way through. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um but again, she admits it, right? It's a fair cop, she says. Um, yeah, Tarlonio, I agree. I think it's not nearly as funny if she doesn't, uh, if she doesn't, if she isn't a real witch uh, at the end. Um, the fact that once again, this sort of crazy romance world, uh, uh, marvelous world, is kind of vindicated at the end of this scene. Uh, is the the last joke, is the final joke here uh, in this whole sequence. Um, yet another place, of course, where we are reminded of the gap is uh, uh, the wonderful beginning of the tale of Sir Robin. 
Bravely bold Sir Robin brought forth from Camelot. He was not afraid to die, oh brave Sir Robin. He was not at all afraid to be killed in nasty ways. Brave, 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 brave Sir Robin. He was not in the least bit scared to be mashed into a pulp. Or to have his eyes gouged out and his elbows broken. To have his kneecaps split and his body burned away. And his limbs all hacked and mangled, brave Sir Robin. His head smashed in and his heart cut out and his liver removed and his bowels unplugged and his nostrils raped and his bottom burnt off and his penis... That's... that's, uh, that's, that's enough music for now, lads. Sir Robin's body language, right, is where we can see the gap again. Um, the fact that this is being done in song, that he goes around accompanied by a set of minstrels who sing of his deeds, right, <clears throat> most plainly illustrates the gap between the legend, right, again, that sort of romance level of the story, and the reality, Right. The reality, of course, with his symbol of the chicken. Right. Uh, Sir Robin, the not quite so brave as Sir Lancelot, um, who had personally wet himself at the Battle of Baden Hill, um, which line became much more. I, I, I was laughing at that line about 10 years before I, <laughs> I knew what the Battle of Baden Hill was. Uh, not quite 10 years, but still, I had been laughing at that for a long time before I discovered uh, what that was. Um, anyway, yeah, so the way in which this sort of romance level of the story that I've been pointing to uh, is connected here explicitly with with song, with legend, right? Uh, w- with the minstrels retelling his deeds. And we can see the, dif- the difference between the legend and the reality. He feels the difference between the legend and the reality. He wants nothing to do with that legend, right? Um, the legend of him risking all of those things as, as the legend continues to, with increasing graphicness... Uh, invite him to imagine all the horrible things that could happen to him while he's going past all of these uh, uh, signs that are pointing towards certain death, right? Um, And the way that he keeps looking back over his shoulder at the minstrels, right? Um, His level of discomfort with this, the gap between the life that he lives and that he really wants to live uh, and the life that the minstrels are saying that he's living, right? Um, Rarely are we, are, are, are we directed more clearly to that gap. And then of course it gets encapsulated uh, in their, you know, in their second song. Of course, after he runs away, oops, I just went to tell Sir Galahad, right? Um, yeah. Baby ran away, away. Haunted us. When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail and fled. His brave Robin turned about and gallantly he chickened out. Uh, my favorite line: "And gallantly he chickened out." Um, uh, now, of course, we have both of the things collapsed into one. Right? We have the same tune. Right? We have the same. Uh, uh, the same adventurous refrain of the minstrels um, now making fun of him, right? Now speaking about the reality, though still in the mode and the tone of the previous uh, high 
uh, praise. And of course, the contrast between their first song and their second song really emphasizes uh, really emphasizes that gap. Um, uh, yeah, Steve and I also like that they're still singing it uh, when they meet up with Arthur again. Absolutely. Um, now, David, that is a really good question. Why do I think they invented Sir Robin rather than using an existing character from the legend? I don't know. Um, and I've always wondered that. I've not been really clear on that. I mean, especially since... I mean, the three primary knights, right? The three ones that are named in the book um, are Lancelot and Galahad and Sir Robin. And Lancelot and Galahad, of course, are very direct nods to their characters in Mallory, right? Lancelot with his violence and his excessive violence and accidentally uh, uh, puncturing people's brain pans. Uh, And um, Galahad, of course, with his chastity, uh, and his uh, and his purity and innocence. Um, on the one hand, I think the fact that they invent a brand new knight um, one of the consequences of it is to serve to distance him more from the rest of them. Like, he's obviously the one who doesn't fit in, right, among the rest of them. He is the one who is um, I mean, he is, he is a fake knight, right? Uh, so they give him, they give him a sort of a fake name. Um, though the fact that they, um, uh, name him after Tim. Yeah. I mean, I, you can't help but think of Robin Hood, right? Especially with his, the way that his minstrels are dressed, right? I mean, he's got a band of merry men, right? As they're going through the woods here. I mean, it's, it, there's, there's, it's, it's, pretty Robin Hood, right? Um, and Robin is a, uh, being that Robin is the name of the second most famous medieval hero, right? Um, possibly even more famous in English tradition. Um, now I know he's not really, he's not actually Robin Hood, but again, the name can't help but recall it, I think, especially in the, uh, in an English context. Um, Which, again, to me, just makes it even more odd in some ways. Um, it would be one thing if they just named him, like, Sir Rupert or something. Like, just some kind of silly, not chivalrous name, right? Instead, they give him a name who's not a chivalrous knight, right? He's not an Arthurian knight. Um, you know, maybe they're also, like, very indirectly poking fun at Robin Hood legends as well, um, the, and the kind of apocryphal nature of Robin Hood legends. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not really sure why, but it's a, it is in two different directions, uh, very, uh, um, a very conspicuous choice, um, yeah. Anyway. This, of course, this passage makes me think of Sir Lancelot uh, and um, his moral struggles, right? It's right after the tale of Sir Lancelot, which is the longest one in the film. Well, really the longest segment of the entire film. Roger the Shrubber. No, 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 
it's not that. It's knee. Knee. No, no, knee. You're not doing it properly. Knee. Knee. That's it. That's it. You've got it. Knee. Knee. Are you saying knee to that old woman? Um, yes. Oh, what sad times are these when passing ruffians can say knee at will to old ladies. There is a pestilence upon this land. Nothing is sacred. Even those who arrange and design shrubberies are under considerable economic stress at this period in history. I am Roger the Shrubber. Um, oh, what sad times are these, right? When passing ruffians can say knee at will to old ladies. There is a pestilence on this land. Um... the way in which this scene evokes the moral decline at the end of the Arthurian world, Arthur himself is being characterized as a passing ruffian, right? Saying knee at will to old ladies, uh, how the Arthurian world is in decline already. Right. Um, and the very high, uh, dramatic register and moral tone of Roger the shrubber here, right. As he is denouncing, uh, the pestilence that is upon the land. Um, and yet Arthur is the butt of this, right? Uh, obviously, again, the whole thing ends up being uh, quite silly. The line that I would point to, which I think is funny in an interesting way, right, is are under considerable economic stress at this period in history, right? Um, the distance from which Roger the Shrubber uh, is proclaiming this, right? Um, his own awareness of this particular, of his moment, right, within this period in, in history. Um, points, interestingly, I think, to what ultimately I feel is one of the primary focuses of the entire film, and that is the tension between, you know, I've been talking about these two different levels. At the end of the day, um, the two sort of forces that come into conflict in this story, uh, in this film throughout, are the modern and the medieval, I think. Um, the medieval world being associated with this, this, this romance level I've been talking about, right? This, uh, uh, the, this world of marvels, which we are often, though not always, uh, uh, not always universally and not always at all times um, being invited to laugh at and find ridiculous, right? And sometimes merely dissolves into ridiculousness like the Black Knight fight does um, after such a very grandiose beginning. Roger the Shrubber seems to know that he is speaking on behalf of the medieval period to a modern audience, Right. Um, we get Tim the Enchanter, right? A uh, uh, a a sorcerer, an enchanter who you know the, our closest Merlin figure who clearly has lots of business of his own. My favorite line in this exchange is, uh, "You're a busy man," and because uh, he has like random explosions to be doing, magic to be performing for no reason that anybody else uh, can can understand. Um, and now, Steve, by the way, Stephen, you're right. Um, Arthur falling to the point of uh, saying knee at will to old ladies does foreshadow the fact that he's not going to achieve the grail. Right. Yeah. I mean, his failure shouldn't surprise us. Right. Um, in the end, 
his knights, he neither he nor his knights have proven themselves worthy of the grail at the end. Um, yeah. The figure of Tim the Enchanter, uh, which, uh, again, comes from the, the, this tradition of the random sorcerers, the people who pop, pop up and uh, give you guidance uh, that you didn't expect. Um, but uh, again, this one has uh, much more to do, like blow himself up on top of the mountain. And then obviously the trials of valor that they have to go through uh, and the mighty beasts that they have to fight. Uh, the f- attack on the uh, the little bunny, right, on the white rabbit um, is when you're remembering, you know, the giants that Lancelot routinely has to fight and even the questing beast, right? Um, uh, this is... Uh, uh, Again, much much funnier in the context of that. Uh, Stephen points out that the whole thing would have been much easier if they had brought some archers, right? Uh, but they have no bows, so they need the holy hand grenade, uh, right? Because, of course, they don't do missile weapons, but at least they do have the holy hand grenade uh, because God is on their side. So that uh, that helps, apparently. Even in this, uh, in a battle like this, God will have a stroke, apparently, um, and blow thy enemies to tiny bits. Um We're starting to run out of time. Let me move forward to the part of the film that I always find most fascinating to think about. Not these are not my favorite scenes in the in the film. Not the parts that I find funniest, um, but the parts that I find most interesting. Um, and that is the frame. So. After the introductory sequence, which we don't realize is an introductory sequence, right? We get this transition moment into the primary story of the film um, by putting the, the film literally in a frame, right? So, I mean, this this scene with Bedivere and Arthur is what we were just looking at, uh, and then they they pan away from that and show that it's just a panel in the book of the film, right? This medieval semi-manuscript book uh, of the film, which reminds us of the medieval frame of this, right? So the story that you're watching, the film that you're watching, is a rendering out of the medieval book, right? Like Mallory comes from the French book. But... That doesn't stay, although we get reminders of this, right? And we come back to the book every time we, you know, for the tale of Sir Robin and the tale of Sir Galahad and the tale of Sir Lancelot, right? Um, and also, I think very importantly, in scene 24. But uh, that frame, the relationship between the medieval source, the medieval physical text, and the story, the film that we're watching we also get the modern frame as well. That is the famous historian who is talking about the events of the film as if they are history, right? The ferocity of the French taunting took them completely by surprise. Um, So now, having first been asked to see the story that we're watching as derived from this medieval manuscript source, right, called the book of the film, um, 
we're now being invited to put it into a modern frame. That is the frame of a historical documentary starring a famous historian, right? And then, of course, on top of that, the two worlds collide very directly. Um, let's go back here to right after the French taunters, our famous historian. Individually. Now, this, now, this is, is what they did. The only horse in the movie. And back to the medieval manuscript. Um, yeah, Karita, I really like the bit about the killing of the famous historian as well. Um... In, in the way that that is such a radical and bizarre departure, right? Like, that's not normally how documentaries go, right? Uh, normally, famous historians uh, who narrate documentaries uh, aren't in much danger from the content of their documentary. But here, of course, this medieval world that the modern historian is looking back on which was itself based on the medieval source, right, framed by the medieval text manuscript, now strikes back at him, right? And this knight comes and slays the historian. And we have, of course, this modern world, the modern world now of the, the witness, right, the lady who, who saw the historian killed, uh, and the, the, the detective inspector who shows up on the scene, uh, right to investigate the crime and try to figure out who did it and tracks them down. They keep coming along, right? They hear the sound of the holy hand grenade exploding in the distance. They show up uh, at this the, the scene of the slaughter uh, where they fought the rabbit, right, at the cave of Carabanar. And then, of course, uh, we see them again frisking Lancelot at the end. Um it is, Lynn, in some ways, like The Princess Bride, the way it's layered, and that we get sort of the frame of the narrative, but we get a much more complicated frame in this film than we get in, uh, uh, in The Princess Bride. We do get some interaction between the frame uh, and the story in The Princess Bride, but the thing, other thing that I would emphasize here, though, is, again, this sort of conflict. It's like we have the story of the film in the middle, Right. And it's it's like being drawn in two different directions. On the one hand, again, we're being told to contextualize this in the context of the medieval manuscript. But then it's also directly interacting with the modern world. Is this a modern story or is this a medieval story that we're seeing? Right. And that is not just something that happens in the frame. Right. Once we kind of start thinking about that, we see, well, hang on a second. This is something that is sort of at tension all the way through, right? We can kind of anticipate that, as, of course, we get in the uh, in the dead cart scene, right at the end, and I agree, Sharon, we certainly do get some dark humor uh, with uh, the, the killing of the guy who's not quite dead here, right? Who's that then? I don't know. Must be a king. Come on. He hasn't got shit all over him. That is not a medieval perspective, right? That is a, you know, first of all, the very fact that we get this scene about the peasants and the dead cart, you'll notice there is nothing like this 
in Maori, right? The distance between this scene and Maori or really any other medieval piece. The way in which Arthur as king is completely detached from the lives of the peasants randomly rolling around and writhing in the mud in the street, right? Uh, the old lady who's uh, uh, who's swinging uh, and smacking a cat against the wall for no obvious reason. Um, the the dead cart. I have got to go down to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Uh, the way in which this scene invites us to consider the perspective of the medieval peasant and how horrible their lives were, and even the dark humor of, you know, can you hang around a moment? He won't be long, right? Um, uh, you know, I don't want to go on the cart, or don't be such a baby, right? Even the, 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 what makes that scene funny is the sort of horrible um, uh, uh, frankness of the two, like the, the way this is this is this is the way the world is, right? But it is not the way that normal medieval romance is at all. This is a part of the world which never, almost never appears in medieval romance at all. And we get that at the very end, right? As Arthur comes through and he's clean, right? And so you can tell he must be a king, right? Because everyone else who's not a king is a peasant, right? Uh, bringing out uh, their nine... Uh, uh, family members who have all died of the plague this past week, right? Um, that's what the life is like for the uh, uh, for the peasants, right? So, again, in that question, like, is this story, is it framed within the modern world? Is it framed within the medieval world? It's framed both ways, right? We see both ways. And that when it comes into contact with the modern world in the frame, right, it does so violently, and it strikes out in randomly and arbitrarily and probably unprovokedly kills the modern historian, right? This act of senseless violence uh, against the modern historian. But again, this is this scene is very much... I see this scene as very much, again, the modern world coming in. Even more aggressively does the modern world come in in the next scene. Once again, the peasants just digging holes in the ground while Arthur goes by in the background. Old woman! Man! Man, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you man. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, a very nice. (laughs) Um, This is definitely one of my favorite scenes in the film. But again, here I think more clearly than anywhere else in the film, we can see the modern world and the medieval world in conflict with each other, right? Um, we've had places where it, so it we, we, we can see glimpses of the same kind of thing, uh, perhaps, in Swamp Castle, uh, with the two different layers interacting, the, sort of with, er, you know, Herbert and his dad, both as the different spokespeople. But that is less aggressively modern, right? Um, this is a much more, you know, the, the whole framework 
of the constitutional peasant here, um, uh, where he absolutely shares none of the assumptions that Arthur comes in with, right? Um, what I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. Um, these, these are these are not just like people who are operating on different levels or people who are interested in different things or people who look at the world in different ways. This is completely different cultural frameworks coming into conflict here, right? Um, so, as and and of course, you, you know the 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 delightful send up of the, um, you know the sort of fairy mystique, right? Of Arthur. The lady of the lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Help, help, I'm being repressed. This is my favorite still of all the stills I took. Graham Chapman's ferocious face. <laughs> this is... Come see the violence inherent in the system. Um the way in which he's not only spouting modern phrases, but modern academic <laughs> phrases. Uh, oh, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Nowhere do we get a more clear contrast of the two different ways to look at the world, right? So where do we end up? Where, where, do, we end, uh, where do we end up in this film? We prepare ourselves for the final battle, which of course, is normally how the Arthurian story ends, right? And I love how Bedivere himself is very surprised here. Um, he is declaring his... Arthur is declaring his intention to fight against the French, and um, they're not going to stop until every one of them lies dead. Ominous words, right, when we know the Arthurian story, because, of course, we know that the Arthurian story ends with a battlefield on which... Everyone, there's literally one survivor, right? Two, if you count Arthur. Um, uh, so, you know, the great and final uh, medieval bloodbath is what Arthur calls for here at the end. We shall attack at once. Yes, my liege. Stand by for attack. Bedivere surprised there, right? Um, Arthur says, we shall attack at once. And he says, yes, my liege, and starts drawing his sword and running forward, preparing for the kind of ludicrous assault that they have done before at the earlier French castle, right? That they did with the rabbit. Um, he thinks that's what Arthur is ordering and that's what he's going to do, right? But instead, Arthur turns and says, prepare to attack. And this army responds. And Bedivere is very surprised, as I think we all are, right? Um, it, 
Yeah, and uh, Carrie, you're right. Arthur does end up fighting with the French at the end, right? And that is Lancelot's. I mean, he does invade France, right? Uh, near the end of the story, we don't get a Mordred here in this version. Um, but uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's fighting the French is not alien to the original story. Um, all of a sudden, once again, so remember, we just had prior to the anticlimax of the. Uh, the discovery of the French taunters here in the castle of the Grail, um, and remember they had said before that they already had a Grail, right? And of course, just like it looked like we were making fun not only of the people who were accusing her of being a witch, but of Bedivere's scientific process for determining whether someone is a witch objectively, right? But of course, it turned out to be right. Right. Herbert does get his happy ending and his his song and dance number. Right. So here it's so with the French taunters, uh, they turns out they do already have a grail. Right. But anyway, um, Bedivere is shocked to look around and find this army. All of a sudden now we're we're back. Just like with the dramatic music, we get different military music, right? With the snare drum and the, you know, the, the marching up to the lines. And we get siege equipment and we get, all, I mean, uh, we're all over it here, right? Uh, more knights still, this is the only element of silliness here is that the knights are still pretending to ride horses, right? So our cavalry is a little bit questionable, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the infantry, uh, it, it looks fairly serious. We've got... We've got little forges, right? We're ready to go. We're 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 we're, we're heating up uh, heating up metal. Maybe we're heating up something to lob at the castle, right? For the siege equipment, um, we're ready for a real uh, a real conflict here, right? And then, of course, we get the final and the greatest anticlimax, which is the Bobbies coming in and arresting King Arthur and shutting everything down, right? The modern world wins at the end of the film, right? Having come into conflict already with the famous historian, right? The, the slaying of the famous historian is where we get that the, the first clash, direct clash between the medieval and the modern world uh, in the frame of the story. Now, that, fra that frame overlaps and ends up coming in and cutting off the story itself, um, so that, in fact, the anticlimax of discovering that the, the sacred castle that they've come to uh, is uh, occupied by the French taunters is as nothing compared to the anticlimax of the charge, which, of course, just leads to everybody's arrest. He even gets his last speech, right? French person! French persons. <laughs> and we still get his... Uh, we're going to charge. The great charge. The climactic battle. And listen. How the the trumpets sounding the charge uh, transition into the siren of the police car, right? Um, we have the modern breaking in on and putting a stop 
to the, all of the uh, medieval nonsense, right? Um, and instead of the great apocalypse of bloodshed that we were ready for, which certainly the you know medieval Arthurian stories prepare us for here at the end and the death of Arthur, right? We get a few arrests and the crowd is peaceably dispersed uh, by the bobbies, right? Well, peaceably, except for the stuffing of the camera uh, at the very end. Um, my, uh, I always loved the fact that, um, you know, the cop takes away one of the, I mean, if we watch the sequence, right? We've got our eyewitness. There's the detective inspector with the witness. That's an offensive weapon, that is, as he takes his shield, uh, which I always found kind of funny. Um, So where does the film leave us at the end, right? The modern world wins. I really love the tension that this... You know, I've been pointing to a couple times throughout the film where it looks like the film is merely asking us to laugh at the medieval stuff, right? There are moments when it obviously is, right? And where we do, you know, repeatedly and throughout. But it doesn't just end up cynically mocking the medieval stuff, right? I've pointed to some examples of where the medieval stuff is vindicated, right? Where it's the romance medieval plot that wins, not um, uh, not the modern plot, right? Not the the, the modern perspective, uh, like with the uh, like with the witch, uh, for instance. Um, but the ending, right? On the one hand, again, the modern world wins. But the modern world is hardly triumphant, right? Tarlonio, I agree with you. Uh, It's a shame the modern world wins because it was about to get good, right? Yes, you think about the way in which we are being invited to invest in this, right? This film is never so serious as in like the two minutes leading up to this final sequence, right? Um, That, you know, his final speeches and the rallying of the uh, of the troops, right? And the charge and everything is is we are finally going to invest completely um, in um, uh, in this story and get this high tragic ending in the proper idiom. And then the idiom is absolutely shattered. And it's the biggest anticlimax, of course, of the entire film, right? The whole film ends in just a cra- the crashing anticlimax with the, uh, the camera being stuffed. All right, Sonny, that's enough. Um, yeah. Um, 
so although the modern world wins, our sympathy isn't necessarily with it at the end, right? We've been invited to laugh at how silly, at how absurd, ludicrous, ridiculous uh, the medieval world is made to look at various points, right? And yet at the end, we kind of like it. The modern world might win, but it doesn't look better, right? Um, uh, and, uh, you know, even the, even in like the constitutional peasant uh, sequence, right? Um, yes, Arthur's perspective, uh, how he, his, his divine right uh, deriving from the Lady of the Lake giving him Excalibur is absurd and made to sound absurd, right? But the academic language of the constitutional peasant uh, sounds absurd also, right? Uh, it is not my, that, and his description uh, of the anarcho-syndicalist commune that they live in is not less silly, right? Does not sound less absurd uh, than Arthur's version either, right? Um, yeah, Lynn, I agree. In the end, modern life is just as absurd as the medieval portrayal, right? And our story, which has been kind of caught in the middle of those two worlds, ends up ends up making fun of both of them, right? Um, and if we are, uh, if we're invited to laugh at the medieval world, I think we're left dissatisfied with the merely modern world. Um, but it's, but it takes in the end, I think a pretty honest look, uh, at both of them. Anyway, the very fact that this film is so interested in these two different worlds, in these two different perspectives, uh, in the, uh, it seems to me like the core premise, like what makes this film funny, like the, the, the comic premise underlying the, the film as a whole is when you look back at this medieval stuff, when you look back at the at the traditional, you know, many of these elements and tropes of the traditional Arthurian world from a modern perspective, they look really ridiculous. Right. And yet it's very aware of its own frame, right? It's very aware of its own, of the absurdity of the modern world that it's operating out of too. It's not blind to the absurdities of its own, of where it comes from. Um, and it's interesting to me, Maori is also very aware of the fact that he is a modern person. Think of all that, you know, love in the old days and, uh, and, and how much greater things were in the old days. And nowadays, you know, the, the new fangleness of, uh, of, of the modern English, right. And the, the, the way that love nowadays is not like it was in the old days, right. He gets more and more dissatisfied with his world, with the modern world as he goes along, as he shows the decline of the old world, um, and ultimately, you know, the collapse of everything, um, we get the personal redemption. Lancelot and Guinevere are both personally redeemed. Um, they both repent and they both uh, come to a good end. But the world doesn't come to a good end. This old world that Maori loves and admires um, fades and dies and we're just left with the modern world, which is... A come down for Mallory, right? So, you know, 
I'm not at all arguing that Monty Python was trying to parallel was, you know, that they were showing the interaction of the medieval and the modern world because they were picking up on that element in Mallory. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's interesting that both of them are kind of doing that, that both of them are thinking about <clears throat> the old and the new. Both of, the, you know, for both of them, the Arthurian story is an old story, which they're seeing from a modern perspective, right? Different takes on it, right? Different ideas of the relationship between the medieval and the modern. But both of them, I think, uh, very interested in, in uh, a similar a similar thing. Um, and yeah, Sharon, exactly. It is uh, easy to begin doing a very Mallory type, you know, to start interpreting parts of this film, especially the business with the famous historian um, in to start interpreting it, interpreting it allegorically as if we were one of the hermits, right? Uh, from, from Maori, as if these, this medieval world, uh, is a kind of assault on modern sensibilities, right? And the, the, the conflict between the modern academic point of view and the medieval point of view, right? And we see them come into literal conflict, um, our one night, the one horse in the film, right? The one night on horseback, um, who therefore seems separate, detached from all of the knights that we see in the medieval story, right? Because none of them actually ride horses, right? So the knight who kills the famous historian is like the the perfect um, embodiment of the knight, right? More perfect than any of the actual knights that we see. And Ben, you are absolutely right. In the end, we do get a joke on the fact that you can't identify anybody in armor, right? When the eyewitness comes in and points at the crowd and says, yes, they're the ones I'm sure, right? And very confidently identifies them because she can tell that that's obviously exactly the person who came along uh, riding out of nowhere like Sir Garlon and killing the, uh, the famous historian. Anyway, all right. Uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to let us go. There's a lot more that we could say, but it's getting super late. Uh, thanks for joining me tonight, uh, for our discussion of the Holy Grail. Thank you. Uh, especially those of you, and there are many of you who are here tonight and who have been with us all the way through, uh, all 36 sessions of our discussion of Sir Thomas Mallory. Uh, delighted, uh, that you stuck it out with me, uh, and came through this really fun experience. Um, don't forget, right? We are on to our next book. We are back. Uh, we are back to Tolkien. Getting my pile of books. Getting. Uh, it's time to set aside Maori and get Sauron defeated. Our next book, Volume Nine of the History of Middle Earth. We're back uh, uh, to uh, uh, to our our, our our Tolkien read through the history of Middle Earth. Really looking forward to the end of the uh, the the history of the Lord of the Rings and then the Notion Club papers uh, with you guys. So we will start that next week. Reading schedule is up on MythGuard.org. Check that out, uh, as well as the new registration uh, link for uh, the new NetMoot session for that. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Uh, and I look forward to starting a new adventure with you guys next week. Good night now. <laughs>